Amen. So Amos chapter 6. So we've only got 12 more sessions to go and we'll finish Amos. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, just a couple more, two or three, maybe four, something like that. But uh, we are in the middle of Amos. You know, we went from under authority to Amos and uh, there's some parallels. And I'll actually reference back to one of our under authority series tonight. And so it's been good to see what God has for us. And it really is all in perspective. You know, when you read Amos, Amos uh, Pastor Tony and I were talking earlier this week. He is, uh, he's very blunt. Uh, he pulls no punches. He's very direct. And, uh, you know, if I'm Israel and I'm receiving these messages, I'm not sure how I feel about this. Uh, you know, just last week when Pastor Tony talked about uh, basically what Amos was doing uh, was speaking their obituary while they were yet still alive. And so what a daunting thought that is. And so as we, we get to this, uh, part 6, we're in chapter 6 tonight. And what Amos does is he exposes to us some of the realities that are very difficult for our modern version of Christianity to come to grips with sometimes. You know, what Israel had done, and, and we're going to unpack this tonight, is they had built this kingdom of their own theology. And in so many ways, that's been the theme uh, throughout the preaching here over the last, really, year uh, for sure, I guess you could even rewind back to February of last year uh, in the series that we were in there and, and talk about how that's been really the resounding theme uh, of what God is showing us. And it is true. And so as Pastor Tony said last week, he's not going to say, does that not apply today? So I could say it 15 times tonight. Uh, it's just so amazing how it is so relevant to what we're talking about. But it exposes the reality of the things that are difficult for us. The things that we hold so dear to our hearts, maybe in belief systems of theology or an application of theology, and the things that uh, we think are true. You see, the question is, what is more incredible to a religious people than that their religion exposes them to the wrath of God? You remember, we talked about this in uh, the series with Under Authority with the Kings, and we talked about... I made the comment that God will erase everything that He has built in order to withhold His standards. Remember we talked about that? And so many times in our lives, we believe that we live in this untouchable bubble, that if we just do these certain things, that God in His love and mercy would never, ever interrupt or mess up or derail or you know, change direction. But that is absolutely not true. If anything that the life of Job teaches us, it ought to teach us that God is intent on accomplishing His purposes, and He will go to whatever means necessary to accomplish that. But what happens in our lives is we, we build this cultural Christianity, if you will, and we believe that there are certain places that God will not go, and that's just not true. You see, what, what happens is when we're exposed to this reality, it's baffling, both to ourselves and understanding that, but also to the watching world around us. You see, for us, and what the world expects from us, is that we would possess or believe a religion that only rewards us, that only forgives us, and that only protects us without the consequences that direct us or correct us. Now, there's a lot in that sentence I understand that. So I, I want you, when you go back and look over this, I want you to spend some time thinking about this sentence. We only want a religion that rewards us, that forgives us, 
uh, and protects us. And we don't want the consequences of anything else. We want to trumpet the things that are good. You know, as Pastor Tony talked last week, you're not going to hear some of the songs sung on uh, the Christian radio station from Amos chapter 5. You're just not going to hear that. Because we only want to talk about the good side. We don't want to talk about the bad side. Now, I know it seems like I'm leading to this, you know, daunting, judgmental message. And trust me, I'm not. But that's what we think, right? That how in the world could we serve a God that's so loving that in fact would exact wrath on His people. You see, it doesn't have anything to do with sincerity. You can be sincere in your belief system and be sincerely wrong. We can sincerely seek or believe things that we want to be or think are absolutely true in our lives, and it is the exact same way as we will see here with the Israelites tonight. You see, as a matter of fact, if you rewind in your mind, if you've been with us on this series, You'll think about the ways and, and the things by which, you know, chapter 1 and chapter 2, Amos is really setting the stage for other nations. And then he comes in in chapter 2, I believe it is, and he begins to directly speak to the Israelites. And as he speaks of the things in which they're doing wrong, he couldn't find a whole lot. Think about it. It wasn't necessarily what they were doing that was the problem with Amos. You see, there were only a few small things that Amos points out that the Israelites were doing wrong. Leavened bread, for example, that led the Israelites astray. It was the motive behind what they were doing. It was the why, not the what. You see, there were only a few small things, but it got to a point to where their sincerity overrode their theology. You ever known anybody like that, that they were devout in their beliefs, but they were wrong? Right? And so they, they were so sincere about what they believed that it overrode their theology and their, their me- mechanics of religion took precedence over their belief. Their faith became mechanical and they focused on ceremonies that often obscured their ethics. And so to the demise of those around them, they would focus on the activity opposed to the application. In the earlier verses, as we'll see in chapter 6, we see the Israelites boasting of all that they possess. But yet, as we'll see at the end, in the latter part of chapter 6, they are clamoring in terror. As a matter of fact, in verse 12 that we'll get to, Amos says they have turned justice into poison. In other words, there's no justice. That the justice system that was supposed to protect those that needed protection had all of a sudden become poisoned, and the fruit of their righteousness, Amos says, has been turned into wormwood. So if we were to summarize chapter 6, we would say that retribution, which is the exacting a reward for their deeds, is what Amos chapter 6 is about. It's about retribution. It's about God calling them to the table about what they have done, and now He's about to tell them the consequences. And so it'd be very easy as we've walked through Amos, and we we talked about this at the very beginning, that it would be easy for us to really nail down ourselves, right? To really condemn ourselves and say, well, just like the Israelites, here's all the things that we're not doing, and here's the ways that God is not pleased with us, and here's all the expectations that God has for us, and here's all the ways that we should change, right? That'd be easy for us to do, but that's not what we're going to do, and that's not what we've done in this series. What we want to look at is, what does this teach us about God? 
You see, that's one of the most important questions that we can ask ourselves. And what should it teach us about ourselves? And so we're going to explore that tonight as we look at uh, the entire chapter of Amos chapter 6. And so we'll start in verse 1 that should be on your handout. Uh, Also, I failed to mention this at the beginning, but I also will reference a couple of verses that are not on your handout. They are in order, and they're at the bottom of your handout. So if you want to go back and look at those later on, you can. So in Amos chapter 6, verse 1, let's pick up here. It says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. So remember, at the beginning, they're boasting about all the things that they're happy about and the things that they have accomplished and the security by which they feel. It says, The notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes, pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Or you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence? And so, again, what Amos is doing is he is comparing Israel to the surrounding nations. And so, Samaria was militarily and economically very dominant during this period of time. And so, you know, they were up on a hill, and so as uh, nations or, you know, cities would begin to attack them, they had the superior position. And so he's asking the question, is Israel any better to fend off an attack than were these powerful kingdoms? You know, the question that we would ask ourselves is, are we in better position to fend off an attack of the enemy than another brother or sister in Christ or another group of believers in uh, a period of history. I mean, we could even relate that today to what's going on in Afghanistan, right? We could say, are we in better position spiritually than they're in spiritually, right? It's, It's a really good question for us to think about. They had become satisfied with the past. The Israelites were okay with all that God had done up until this point, and all of the victories that they had experienced, and all the good that God had lavished upon them. They were satisfied with where they were in life. Now, satisfaction can be very dangerous. And so they began to believe that they got to this point because of their works. They began to look around and say, look at all the things that we've got. Look at all the good that we've done. We should build beds of ivory. We should drink wine not out of bottles or glasses, but out of bowls because we have an abundance. And so we see that they basically felt like it was because of their good works that they had accomplished all of these things. They were at ease, they felt secure, and they were satisfied with all of the things that God had done in the past. And so what this did is it caused complacency in the present. Now here's a question that we're not going to unpack tonight, but I just want to ask you. Do you think that the the current church is asleep? Right? I mean, would you say that the current global church is asleep? I mean, look at the events of the world that are around us. Complacency in the present would be the number one descriptor of what's going on. And we talked about this in the Under Authority series, and uh, it was number nine. If you missed it, you should go back and listen to it. Uh, It's where we talked about Hosea. He was the last king of Israel. And his complacency led to the ending or the demise of the nation of Israel. His complacency led to the demise of the nation of Israel, which, of course, obviously prevented them 
from pursuing anything in the future. From pursuing anything in the future. And so I want to talk to you about three things I think we see tonight in these Scripture, and they are so encouraging, uh, but I want, to, I want to unpack these tonight. And so as we see Israel satisfied with where they're at, they're complacent, they've looked at all the things that God has done in the past, and they say, you know what, we're good. Look at all the good that is happening to us today. And so the first thing I want you to see tonight is this. What do we learn about God? God is a forward-moving God. Now, I don't want you to miss this, all right? I really want you to think with me for a second in your own context, okay? In your own context, I want you to think about what this means. God is a forward-moving God. So, I can give you many, many examples in my own life of how God has moved, but let me just give you one. So, uh, when I went to seminary, and I moved back from seminary, I'd completed uh, seminary, and I moved back, and I wasn't sure where God wanted me to go. God had moved us to, us to seminary, and so then God, we completed that, and so we moved back. And from the very minute that I moved back to my hometown, we knew this is not where God wants us to be. This is not the destination. This is just part of the journey. There was just this unsettled in my heart of this is not where we're ending up at. This is just a part of the journey. But don't we always do that? So many examples in Scripture of how we go back to what? To comfort, to familiarity. And we say, all right, well, this is where I'm going to be because I don't know what the next move is. And what happens to a lot of people, we're going to talk about it in just a second about getting stuck in your faith. What happens to a lot of people is they, they feel uneasy and they feel unsettled and they know that God wants them to move because God is a forward-moving God. And so they know that God wants them to move. And so they don't know what to do. And so what they do is they go back to familiar and they go back to comfort and they go back to what ultimately leads to complacency. And then for years and maybe for their life, decades, they are stuck in this one area of life and they see God moving in other people's lives and they see God moving people in other areas of their life and yet they are stuck in that one place. And so maybe this is you tonight. Maybe you're in a situation to where you feel like you're not moving. You're not moving in the direction that God wants you to go. You're not sure why that's the case, but you see God moving all around you, and you see God doing things all around you, but you are not involved in that. So we're going to talk about that. God is a forward-moving God, and so I just felt this uneasiness in my life that, no, there's something else, there's something else. And it wasn't a week, and it wasn't a month later that I discovered that. It was, we had to persevere, and we had to dig in, and we had to seek God's face and say, God, what is it that you want us to do? And God, where is it that you want us to move? And uh, seven months later, eight months later, God ended up moving us. So it wasn't this instant thing, oh, God wants me to move, and then I open up my Bible, and bam, this is where He wants me to move, and I go. That's not how it worked for me. Now, I hope it works that way for you. That's not how it worked for me. And so as God is moving, He intends for us to move too, that we not sit in the same place. So we're going to unpack this. You see, the word move, which means to bring someone or something out of a particular place to another place, is used 247 times in the Bible. Just that text version of that word. There's other versions of that word. But to move, uh, to bring someone or something out of a place to another place, 247 times. So do you think God is intent on us moving? Well, of course He is. 
So I began to think about this. Well, what, where do we see that in Scripture? If God, in fact, is a forward-moving God, and He is, which I'm about to prove, then where do we see that in Scripture? Well, I'm glad you asked. Think about Abraham. God did not start the nation of Israel through Abraham where he was. Nope. He called Abraham to what? To move. And it was not until Abraham moved that the nation of Israel was birthed. Think about the nation of Israel. God did not deliver the Israelites where they were, in Egypt. No, He did not. They had to move out of Egypt in order to be delivered, right? And what did the Israelites do? They clamored and complained and said, oh, if we were just back in Egypt, we wouldn't have hunger pains, right? And we do that. We say, oh, well, if I'm back in comfort, if I'm back in familiar, if I'm back in hometown, well, then I don't have to seek the face of God because I've built this palace around me like the Israelites had done to which I'm comfortable. So the Israelites said, if we're going to be who God wants us to be, which they didn't know this, but God was moving them. If they were going to be the people of God that God intended for them to be, they had to move. Think of the fate that it took to step into the river, right? They stepped into the sea, God part of the Red Sea. Think of the faith that that took, that they're leaving behind comfort and familiarity and moving, and it was the only way to what? To be rescued. It's the same for us. God is a forward-moving God. Think about the disciples. When, when Jesus called the disciples, did He say, look, here's a card that tells you all you need to know about me. If you will apply that in whatever context you have, that would be great. And I'll count you as one of my followers. That's what modern Christianity today says, is you add Jesus. Whatever you're doing, you just keep doing that, and you add this eternal salvation card, and you're going to be good. That is not how God works. What did He tell the disciples? He said what? Follow me. And then he says, what? If you don't hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister, if you don't deny everything and follow me, then you're not fit to be a disciple. What is he telling them? That you have to move from you to Jesus. That's a forward-moving God. Think about Paul. Did God say, hey, Paul, you're smart, you're a Pharisee, man, I could really use a Christian in that Pharisee circle. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to save you, and I want you to keep doing everything you're doing right now. No. He blinded the guy. He sent him to somebody's house he didn't even know, and then he sent him across half the globe planting churches. He moved him. Why did he do that? Because God is a forward-moving God. So as we think about this, life in the kingdom is about movement. Life in the kingdom is about movement. I mean, I could apply this right now. What does movement right now for all of us look like? Being a part of hurricane relief. That's movement. There's so many examples of that. Because God is a forward-moving God, then life in the kingdom is about movement. You see, wherever you are spiritually, I want you don't miss this, wherever you are spiritually, is not where God intends for you to finish. Now, I don't know where you're at spiritually. You know, you may be a babe in Christ. You may be a, a spiritual parent. You may be discipling people. Wherever you are, that is not where God intends for you to finish. How do I know that? You're still alive. You're still alive. If God was finished with you and you, were, you had arrived where God wanted you to be, you wouldn't be here. 
but you're still here. And so that means God's not finished and that there's things that he wants to use you for to move you into kingdom work. You see, many people are stuck spiritually, like I just said. I want to give you two reasons why I think people are stuck spiritually. The first reason, very simple, very obvious, unfortunately very common. People are stuck spiritually because they focus on the past. So maybe this is you. Man, I remember the good old days of church. We had tent revivals. And I remember when they did hymns all the time. Or I remember whatever you're, you like or whatever. And you say, oh, well, that's the way it was. And if we could just go back to the way it was. Is that how God works? No. We just talked about God as a forward-moving God. And so oftentimes we have these past spiritual victories, which are good and legitimate, right? God did stuff in our life. It's not that we're discrediting those things, but when God does something in our life, He is using that to build, to move us, not to lavish in the things in which we've been given. And so as God is moving, we look at these past spiritual victories, and we become dependent on past spiritual victories victories. Well, the last time I was in this situation, God did this, and so that must be what He wants to do in this situation. And we start to depend on circumstances or situations instead of God. You see, there's times maybe that God spoke to you. Maybe there's a special place in your life. Maybe it's a prayer closet. Maybe it's a location. Maybe you had an encounter with God. Maybe you had a moment with God. Maybe it was a church service. Maybe it was a preacher. There's so many examples of this to where you had this past experience and you felt close to God. And so what happens is people who get stuck spiritually, they keep trying to go back to Egypt. They say, oh, if I could just go back, if I could just hear that preacher preach one more time, oh, if they would just sing that song one more, oh, if they would, if I could just go back to this spot, I'll remember where I was, I'll remember this moment, right? It's not that it was bad, of course it was good, but it's not that you should depend upon that to continue to propel you forward in your faith. God is a forward-moving God, and so when we move forward, well, guess what? That takes risk. It takes risk. And in risk, how do we take risk in, uh, in our uh, faith? Well, it requires faith. You have to say, God, I don't know what that looks like, but I know that you're calling me to move. And so I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to depend upon you, and I'm not going to depend upon past victories. Now, I know that can be hard. Because, hey, look, we, we have, we're creatures of habit, and we've got things we like, ways that we like it, and so I know it can be hard. It, it is hard to continue to move forward. It is easy to depend upon past experiences. This is what Solomon, the smartest man ever, said. In Ecclesiastes 17, he says, why were, he said, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So in other words, don't look back and say, man those, man, those good old days, they were good. I wish God would do what He used to do. Well, clearly you're not understanding who God is. Because God is moving and God is active. And so here's what I want you to take away. So people that are stuck spiritually because they focus on the past. If that's you, this is what I want you to take away. Your past is never better than your future. 
Your past is never better than your future. What God has in store for you is far greater than whatever it is that you experienced in the past. And ever how good that was. I'm not discrediting that or demeaning that or diminishing that. What I'm telling you is that whatever you experienced in the past is not as good as what God has in store for you in the future. So focusing on the past. Number two, so people that are spiritually stuck. Well, if you don't focus on the past, we've also got a lot of people that are content with the present. I really don't want to change D groups because I really like the people that I'm with. And so we're just going to keep doing it for four and five and seven and ten years in a row. Well, that's not multiplication, right? We're content with the present. Not that it's bad to like the people that you're around. That's definitely a good thing. But here's the thing. We should never be content with things as they are. We should never be content with things as they are. So I was talking to somebody earlier about the news. Let me ask you a question. When you watch the news, do you say, oh, man, we are in a good spot right now. I just, I feel really good about everything. Right? Is that what you do? Of course not. When have you ever watched the news and said, you know, I feel really confident about where we are as a nation, and I, I just feel satisfied right now. I'm, I'm okay with everything. No. No one has said that, ever. Right? There's always something more, better that we could be doing because we're human and we fail. And so what we have to realize is that we should never be content with that. So let's draw it in spiritually. Wherever you are, Remember, it's not where God intends for you to finish. And so you can't be okay with wherever you are because it's not where God intends for you to finish. It's not where God intends for you to finish. The cities that were surrounding uh, the Israelites, they were greater in size than uh, proud Samaria. Yet, they were still unable to stop disaster. They were still unable to stop disaster, as big as they were. You see, what this teaches us is that privilege and comparison led to complacency. Again, you can go back to Under Authority 9. You, there's lots of information there about complacency. And so privilege and comparison led to complacency. They, be, they were okay. Remember, we're talking about being spiritually stuck. They were okay with how things were. So a good question to ask yourself is, am I okay with where I am? Are you satisfied with where you are spiritually? You see, we can't be content with things staying the same. We cannot be content with things staying the same. Now, here, here's something about this. I don't know, maybe help you. So this is often what I talk to people about when we talk about salvation, especially people who doubt their salvation. Because what you often hear, especially in legalism, is, well, what date did you get saved? What was the time and date? Well, you know, what, when was? Tell me about your salvation experience. Oh, well, you don't remember your salvation experience? Oh, well, you know, or, or you, you often hear people say, oh, well, here's when I got saved. I got saved like I got saved February the 4th of 1998. And so you'll say, oh, well, no, I'm saved. I got saved in 1998. Well, so that's the evidence of your salvation? Something happened 23 years ago? You see, when we are content with where we are, what we do is we don't move, right? That's what we're talking about. And when we don't move, what do we do? We begin to look back. 
and we're satisfied with whatever happened in the past, and this case is very good, and we're not moving forward. And so what we say is, well, that's when I got saved. So the question I always ask, well, if that's when you got saved, then what's God doing in your life today? Because the evidence of salvation is fruit, right? Jesus said you'll know them by their fruits. Galatians 5, and 23 talks about fruits of the Spirit. That's the evidence of salvation is what is God doing in your life today? And so this is a big thing. Legalism is, oh, well, you know, that's when I got saved. And I, I remember I've said this before, but I was at a church one time. This guy came to me, hey, we want to join the church. And I said, oh, great. Well, tell me about your relationship with Jesus. He said, oh, I'm saved. I'm good. I've already taken care of that. But my kids aren't saved. I said, I don't know what that means, right? God is always moving, and if we continue to look back and reference events in the past instead of what God is doing today, because the Bible says what? That He makes His mercies new every day, right? And so God reveals Himself to us, and so we can't be content with things staying the same in the past. I said this, it's one of my favorite sayings, long obedience in the same direction right? That we got to stay the course, and we can't be content with where we are. We've got to continue to move forward. So number one, God is a forward-moving God. If you are not moving, you need to get moving. If you're not moving, you need to get moving. The quickest way, and I'll say this at the end, the quickest way to start moving again is to serve. The quickest way to start moving again is to serve. Don't sit around and wait for, God, where do you want me to move? God, I, I don't know what you want me to do. And so we're frozen. We talked about this in small group last week. Paralysis by analysis, right? We just say, well, God, what is it that you're doing? And what do you want me to do? And what part do you want me to do? God, do you really want me to go to home? God, do you really want me to move? Or do you really want me to change jobs? Or do you really want me to witness to my neighbor? God, you just let me know what you want me to do, and I'll do it. And then you just wait. In the meantime, what you need to do is you need to serve. You need to give. You need to give of your time. You need to serve other people. You need to look for opportunities. Because remember, as a child of God, what do you possess? The Spirit of God. What does the Spirit of God teach us? The things about God, according to Romans chapter 8. And what do we know about God? That He serves other people, right? Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And so if you want to start moving with God again, start serving. So he says in verse 4, let's pick up, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory, stretch themselves out on their couches. They eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. doesn't sound very good. So God's moving forward, and He's warning the nation of Israel. So what does this teach us about God? Well, number two, what this teaches us about God is that God always moves for the good of the people. God is a forward-moving God. And God always moves for the good of the people. Now stay with me. I really want you to focus on this. God is more interested, next blank on your handout, God is more interested in the welfare of His people than in the preference of a person. 
God is more interested in the welfare of His people than in the preference of a person. So listen, God may not do what I think He ought to do. That doesn't change anything. God is going to do what God wants to do because He's God, right? And so God always moves in group. Think about the Israelites. Pastor Tony talked about this a couple weeks ago uh, from Corinthians. That what? That we move in pilgrimage, right? That nobody's out cowboying in the wilderness trying to make to the promised land and showed up before Joshua did. That didn't happen. The entire nation of Israel moved in tandem together as they marched into the promised land. It is the same for us. As God is moving people, He uses people in different situations, but it is always, always, always for the good of His people, not for the preference of a person. He says, beds of ivory, long couches, idle songs. In boredom, they invented music. They were pretending to be like David. They drank wine from bowls, and they had no regard for the ruin of other people. Again, look around. The kingdom, the kingdom always comes first. The kingdom always comes first, not the individual. We've talked about this in a couple different ways, but we've been lulled to sleep in, you know, America because everything is about me, right, and my rights and my individual, and, you know, I want what I want, and there's commercials about that, and, you know, the list goes on and on because we deserve it, and it's our freedom, and it's our right, and so on and so forth, and, and that's America, right, that we have freedoms, and it's true, we do. We do have freedoms, and I'm, I'm grateful to live in the greatest nation, right? We have these freedoms, But the kingdom, we're not talking about nations, we're talking about the kingdom. The kingdom always supersedes every bit of that. And it has nothing to do with the individual person. Think about it this way. Let me give you some examples. In the Old Testament, God used Moses for the good of Israel. Right? God used Moses for the good of Israel. Who did not go into the promised land? Moses. Who did go into the promised land? God's people. What did God do with Moses? He used Moses as an instrument of his will to get the Israelites to where? To the promised land. I preached this a few weeks ago. This is not about me and it's not about you. It's about the kingdom. So we have to put our preferences aside and say, what is God doing that's the greater good? So, God used the kings, right? Think about the kings. We went through the Under Authority series. God used the kings for what? For the good of the nation. It had nothing to do with preference. It had nothing to do with giftedness. It was God simply using them to be a part of what He was doing to continue to move the nation of Israel. Case in point, if God can speak through a donkey, He can use anybody, right? Think about New Testament, all right? So you say, all right, well, what about New Testament? I'm glad you asked. In the the New Testament, what do we see? We saw where God used Paul to catapult the church, right? And so God used an individual, and what did Paul say? Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ, not my will, but yours be done. He said, I got a thorn in the flesh, and I wish God would take it away, but he's not doing it. But I'm going to persevere. I'm going to fight the good fight. I'm going to run the race, right? We've seen all this terminology that Paul used. Why did he do that? For the good of the global church. Think about the disciples. 
What did God do in the disciples' life? Did at the end of the disciples' life, did they inherit Rome? Did they get their own mansion? Did they get their own kingdom? Did God have stowed away gold that he hid somewhere that he gave them after Jesus resurrected? No. No, he didn't. Every one of them were martyred. Martyred. God uses individuals for the good of the kingdom. Now, that's a sobering thought. It's a sobering thought that God would use me and dare I say that I am dispensable in this plan, in this process. It's very hard to say, isn't it? One of the things that really irritates me when I read it in Scripture, it really, really actually makes me mad, is when I read about the death of John the Baptist. It makes me mad. I've said this before because it makes me mad. It was the most senseless death ever. But here's what John the Baptist, the forerunner, remember, the forerunner of Jesus, this is what John the Baptist said right shortly before he died. He said in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. This is someone who understood. Look, Jesus came to John the Baptist and said, I want to be baptized. And John was like, hang on, man. This, look, you're way, you're way greater than I'll ever imagine to be. And Jesus says, no, I, I need to be baptized. John understood that it wasn't about him. He understood. What, what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, God always moves. Remember, we're talking about God moving for the good of people. All throughout the Bible, God is in the process of sanctifying individuals for what? To implement them into kingdom work. Always. In your life and in my life, what is God doing? He is sanctifying me. Not for my edification or my glorification, but for the kingdom's edification and glorification, right? So, he references, interestingly enough, Joseph. You see, I don't even have to give you a personal illustration of this point. Amos gives us one. He says, what about Joseph? You see, as Joseph lay in the pit crying out for help, his brothers were feasting without a care in the world. You know the story of Joseph, Genesis 20 through 50. And so we see the story of Joseph and, and all the things. You know the story. He's in prison. He's falsely accused. He's forgotten. And then all of a sudden, guess what happens? Several years later, he rises to prominence and position of authority. Israel's in famine now. And guess who has the ability to do something about it? Joseph. Think about that story. God used the story of Joseph in all of the troubles that he endured to ultimately provide for the nation of Israel during their famine. Think about that. that so do you think if God went to Joseph in Genesis 20 and he said, all right, look, here's the plan. You're about to endure a lot of really bad things. Are you in? Right? What if he came to you and said, look, here's the deal. You're going to be modern-day Job, and here's all the things that are going to happen to you. Yes or no? Right? We would all say, God, I'm not sure about that. Like, is there a retirement plan in that? Like, is there like a pension at the end? You know, do I get like this unlimited, you know, good things at the end? Like, how's this going to end? Right? That's what we think. Or, or Jonah, right? You know, Jonah, Jonah makes a bad decision, and he turns the other way. But what, does, what happens to Jonah? Do the Ninevites love him and give him a mansion in the city? No. Right? So in our minds, we think 
that there's got to be something in it for me. Right? If I, if I sacrifice myself for the good of the kingdom, I'm a disciple and I say, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. I gave up everything. Remember, Jesus tells the rich young ruler, give everything away. And then Peter's like, Jesus, um, uh, we actually did that. We gave everything away. So is there something for us that we're going to get? Right? And what does he get? He gets glory. He gets eternity with Jesus. That's what you get. That's what I get. We get eternity with Jesus. We measure everything by what our eyes and our mind can understand, which is earthly. But God says, look, it's not about that. It's not about what you can see. It's not about you. It's about Him. It's about the kingdom. And so what God did is He used Joseph to reveal what He was doing for the nation of Israel. And so for all of us, guess what? You're Joseph to me, and I'm Joseph to you. That God may use you in your sanctification process for the good of me. And God may use me in Him sanctifying me for your good. And God may do things in my life that don't benefit me, but that benefit you and vice versa. Because why? Because God is ultimately doing and always using what's best for the kingdom. So here's a question that we must answer. Is discomfort worth my brother knowing Christ? Is discomfort worth it? Is inconvenience worth my family member knowing Christ? Is laying aside personal preference worth my friends knowing Jesus? Oh, they don't do it the way I I want them to do it, so I'm not going to be around them. I'm not going to talk to them. They say the wrong things. Well, what are we we after here? My way or his way? You see, a thousand times over, if we were to have Joseph here standing before us tonight and ask Joseph the question, would you do it again? Joseph would say yes. I think Joseph would say, yeah, I I would endure. If it meant me saving my family, I'm in. Right? And we're all a part of the family of God. And so I think what happened for the disciples is they got to the point to where they realized, okay, this is actually bigger than us. This doesn't have anything to do with my 401k. This doesn't have anything to do with my family getting benefits at the end. This doesn't have anything to do with me being recognized. As a matter of fact, Peter ran from recognition. Remember the denial thing? They realized this is about the kingdom. And there may, be, there may be benefits earthly at the end, I don't know. But if that's what I'm shooting for, I'm going to miss it. But if I'm aiming for a kingdom, well then, I may have already received it. You see, the truth is, God is using me to sanctify you. And God is moving you to sanctify me. In verse 8, the Lord God has sworn by himself, Amos declares, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I bore the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring, uh, him up to bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, Is there still anyone with you? He shall say, No. And he shall say, Silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. So he's painting this picture, if you will, where there's this, this you know, catastrophe, uh, if you would imagine maybe for us that, you know, the, 
everyone was ravaged, okay? And they were all, you know, murdered. They were all killed. And there was someone who hid in the house. This is the picture he's painting. And someone's hidden in the house. And so the family members come behind the, those that have lost their life. And they're, they're, they're taking care of them. They're getting their bodies and they're, they're taking them for burial. And they hear someone in the back of the house say, hey, hey is it safe to come out? And, and Amos says that the one who is picking up his family's body will turn to the survivor and say, shh, don't say God's name. If you say his name, he may come back and kill all of us. Get that picture in your mind. Behold, the Lord commands, the great house shall be struck down with fragments, the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? Behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath uh, to the brook of Arabah. So instead of calling on the name of the Lord, Amos says that they're going to be terrified to speak His name. Now remember, this is God's people. God always moves for the good of the kingdom, not the preference of a person. And then number three, God moves us through our circumstances to root out our pride and self-reliance. Now, here's a disclaimer. The circumstances, the goal here, as we talk about this, is not for you to find a way out of your circumstances. That's not learning. You see, they had become so flippant with the name of the Lord that when death found them and only one survivor was left, in fear he was told not to call upon the Lord lest God comes back and kill the remaining. Can you imagine the terror? Right? I mean, think about it. I was joking about watching TV and saying, I feel really good about this. Right? We can look at the television and we can hear all the th things that are happening today. And we, we, we would all agree that we would say, that is terrible. And then what is our response? What does our heart say in that moment? Come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? Because our hope is in Jesus. It's not in men figuring it out. It's in God coming back and making it all right. Right? That, that's the way this ends. And so imagine, if you will, that that hope is taken away. That we watch TV and we say, man, this is terrible. And it's not getting any better. Imagine, that's the, that's the picture that Amos is painting here. You see, they had gotten here because of pride. Now, pride in the Bible is listed, uh, is cited in the two lists of the most glaring sins of the Bible. As so many of the sins of attitude, pride itself cannot remain internalized. And so what God is doing is he's, he's through Amos, he's rooting out, he's using circumstances to root out their pride. He's rooting out their pride. So how do you get to this point? 
You see, what pride would do in this moment is it would cause us to attempt to answer the question, what is God doing? Pride would cause us, now you would think that that's the right question to ask, but pride would actually cause us to ask that question, what is God doing? Why would pride cause us to ask that question? Because we want to figure it out. Pride would cause us to want to figure out God and figure out what God is doing and why this is happening. You see, what it ought to, for us, the answer is not that we would solve the riddle so that the circumstances would go away. That's not the answer, okay? So if you're sitting here thinking, okay, well, I got some tough circumstances in my life, so if I can figure this out, then God's going to let me out of this. Yeah, I mentioned Jonah earlier. You know, Jonah's in uh, the belly of the fish, and then he prays in chapter 2, and all of a sudden the fish spits him out on land, and boom, he's headed to Nineveh. Right? That's the God that we want to serve, right? That's the God in our own minds that we've fathomed up, that we say, okay, that when I do the right thing, that God's going to instantly reward me. That is not how it always works. I mean, if that's true, have a conversation with Job, right? So the answer is not to solve the riddle. You see, and I want you to get this tonight, accomplishment in the kingdom is continuance. It is not completion. Accomplishment in the kingdom is continuance. It is not completion. You see, God uses our circumstances to root out the pride in our life and the self-reliance. And what happened for Israel is they had become so self-reliant and looking at the past victories and lavishing in all the good things that God had allowed them to have in their life. And so they thought they had arrived. And so they thought they had accomplished everything that God had in store for them. But the accomplishment in the kingdom is that you would persevere, that you would continue. It's not that you would complete something, because if you're completed, you're no longer living. Remember we said that earlier. You see, this is the moment. This is not the moment that we would try to figure things out. This is the moment where we would draw a circle around ourselves and figure out if there is anyone in the circle that needs to repent. Right? If our circumstances are, we, we have to look. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself. So we have to do that. We have to look at the things that are happening in our life and say, what is going on? And we draw a circle around ourselves and say, okay, does anybody in this circle need to repent? Right? What is it in my life? What sin is present in my life that is hindering my walk with God, that is hindering me from moving where God wants me to be? Remember, God is a forward-moving God. And if I want to be a part of what God is doing, then I have to be willing to allow Him to use me in the process of accomplishing His will. And what that means is that I have to be okay with the outcome because I trust Him, right? So whatever your circumstances are telling you right now, what faith would say is, God, I know that you're doing something. And I'm going to be very careful about repenting of the things in my life of known sins that I know that are distancing me from you. And I'm going to trust that whatever you do in this circumstance, I'm going to be okay with. And I'm going to need you to help me be okay with that. Right? That's what faith says. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. And if I had the choice, I may not choose the outcome. As a matter of fact, most of us would probably not choose the outcome. If, we, if God came to us like Joseph and said, hey, will you sign up for this? A lot of us are going to say, I, I'm not sure about that, God. You see, that's where faith comes in. That we say, God, I don't understand the circumstances, and I don't have control over how they end, but I trust you. 
And so I'm going to believe in faith that whatever you're doing, you're doing it for the betterment of the kingdom. You see, what I have to do is to submit to the unknown in faith. Maybe one of the most difficult things that believers do. To submit to the unknown. You see, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. If you're waiting for the clouds to spell out what God wants you to do, you might be waiting a while. Right? It's faith. Is that you've got to believe that whatever God is doing in those circumstances is not for you to figure it out so you can get out of them. It's so that you can draw closer to God while you're in them and continue to move forward. You see, in order for that, us to do that, well, guess what that's going to take? It's going to take some humility. You see, what humility does is it measures everything, not by how it will stroke my ego or how it will enhance my reputation, but how it will serve the good of others. How can we get to a point in our faith where we submit to the unknown where we have to humble ourselves? You see, the Israelites had mistaken the goodness of God's blessing as something to pridefully promote their own good and their own well-being instead of promoting the good of the kingdom. And so what they had to do, and God clearly came in and took care of things, and so it's a daunting thought to think, to know, as we see in Scripture, that God is intent on accomplishing His will for the glory of the kingdom. And we get to be a part of that. And so, for us, we have to allow the circumstances of, self of pride and self-reliance, we have to allow the circumstances to root those things out. You see, the opposite of pride for us, the answer for moving forward, the answer for allowing God to root out pride in our life, to humble ourselves. How, what is the answer? Well, I said it earlier. It's service. It's the opposite of pride. It's that we would find opportunities to love our neighbor, that we would look for opportunities to serve the body. And that could be in Homa, that could be across the street, that could be in Kingdom Kids. I don't know where it is for you. But it's serving the body of saying, God, I know you're moving, and I want to be moving with you. Because if God is moving, and I'm not moving, what's happening? The distance gap is widening. And so as God is moving, I want to be pursuing God as He's moving, and I want to be moving with God. But in order for me to be moving with God, I've got to be involved in the things that God's involved in. And it can't be just personal preference items. I can't just only do what I like. Right? i got to say, God, I want to be a part. I want to serve. And it may mean inconvenience. And it may mean discomfort. And it may mean risk. And it may mean danger. I don't know what it looks like for you. But I know in my own life that God has used so many different things to move me. And in most of those circumstances, maybe all of them, there was always a heightened level of uncertainty that I wasn't sure how it was going to turn out. I didn't know exactly what God was doing. I just knew he was leading me, and He was with me. And so we just have to plug in, and we, we have to 
humble ourselves and say, God, I want to be a part of where you're going, and I'm not exactly sure where that is, but I want to be a part of that. And so I want to serve until you show me what that looks like. And so I want to encourage you here. This last blank is lengthy, but I definitely want to encourage you. In the midst of our circumstances, the ones that are hard, the ones that are good, the ones that hurt, the ones that I celebrate, even the ones that I don't understand. All of those good, bad, hurtful, great celebration, the things that I don't know and understand, I have to submit to the one who is in control of all of it. Examine my heart and my motives. I have to deny self-reliance in these situations and serve the kingdom as God moves me. It is all about the kingdom. It is all about movement. So I want to encourage you, if you feel like you're stuck, go back and look at the reasons that we talked about, focusing on the past, being content with the present. As believers, we're always forward moving. God is moving us. God has a plan for us. So we can look at the TV and say, woe is me. But we can also look up and say, great is God, right? And that in in the midst of whatever we may encounter, that there is still a God who is in control. There is still a God who loves us, and that same God absolutely will accomplish what He set out to accomplish, and nothing will stop that. And so we can live in hope and faith and great expectation of the day when that takes place. Amen? In the meantime, I want to encourage you to serve, to serve. Let's pray. God, thank you for Amos. And uh, God, sometimes it's... uh...